young people about our life's journey, and we hope it's going to be down like some nice little tree path, whatever, whatever your image of life is. Sometimes there's a few rocks on the path. Sometimes, you know, if you're in bare feet, you cut your feet. Sometimes there's sharp stairs to go up, and sometimes the path goes around a corner and takes you to unexpected places, which I'd say that that's it for all of us. So my early years, um, that's a map of England. I, I, I'm a limey. Um, I was born right around there, South End on Sea. Um, there it is. Now, my mom used to tell us that South End was this quaint little fishing village, and so you have the images of little fishing boats and little fishermen and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I used to say to people, I was born in South End on Sea. And then uh, some guy said, you know, that's a dump. He said, like, <laughs> he said, all the folks from London go out to South End for their dirty weekends. He said, maybe you should stop saying that. So I said, well, well, what do I say? He said, say you're from Essex. So I'd say, hi, I'm very, I was born in Essex. And then I found out there's a whole deal about Essex girls. And so anyway, I said, well, what do I do about that? And he would just say you're born east of London. So I'm born east of London. And um, anyway, my dad right here, um, he, he was born in London. He's, uh, he was Jewish and he was a Cockney. Cockney means that you live within the sound of bow bells in London. And um, the war came, please wait. Was that for me? No. Okay. Um, anyway, so my, my dad wanted, like, he was a young man during the war and the Blitz and all this, and he was involved with the brigades. That, like that one big awful one where the bomb went down the tube, where people were hiding down in the subway tube. A German bomb went right down the tube and killed hundreds of people in what they thought was a safe place. So my dad was like 15, 16, and went down there to help pull the bodies out. They knew that something was going on with the Jews in Germany, like everybody knew, but no one talked about it. And my dad, being from a Jewish family, uh, wanted to do something, so did a little bit of lying about his age and all this sort of stuff, wanted to join the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Um, he tried for pilot school, logged a few hours, and they said, you know, we don't have time to, to really bring you up to speed. So he said, well, what do you need? And they said, we need gunners. We're losing them faster than anything. So they said, he said, okay, I'll be a gunner. And uh, he and his buddy became gunners on a Lancaster bomber. And my dad, they flipped a coin. There was a, like, Lancaster bomber had the heaviest payload of any bomber of anybody during the war because they didn't have an underneath belly turret. They only had the, the front gunner, the uh, mid-upper, and the tail. So the whole bottom of the plane was just for bombs. Uh, there was no gun shooting down. So the trick was, the Germans learned very fast, if you blast out the tail, then they, the, the fighters could come underneath and, and then take the plane out of the sky. So my dad flipped a coin with his buddy. He lost the toss, and he was stuck in the tail. So he spent 45 missions or so going backwards with the rest of the crew way in front of him. They were posted to Pathfinder duty, and what Pathfinders do is they lay down um, magnesium flares over the target. This is way before GPS. And uh, they would then illuminate the target for night bombing, and then the other Lancasters would come over and, and, uh, and bomb that. Um, unfortunately, the, the crew was killed with about two missions to go. They were coming in with a full load of, of magnesium bombs coming down lower. Uh, they, the primary and secondary targets were fogged in. So they were returning to England with a full load of bombs. And as the plane came down to explode altitude, the safety pins had not been put in. And the whole plane blew up. And the only guy that got out was the tail gunner. And uh, so the, the, my, my father said he heard this shudder. The uh, pilot held the plane and said, get out. My dad turned the turret sideways, had a new type of parachute on, fell out the back door, and the plane blew up. Um, everybody else was killed. 
If he'd known that they were all going to die, he would have stayed in the plane. And I would say for the rest of his life, he regretted bailing out. Um, so that's his story. Uh, my mom was from Scotland. She was raised in Glasgow in the slums by a sad, broken man who was out of World War I. And uh, the war was a chance to get out for her. So she got out of Glasgow, joined the RAF, and she was a fueler on the uh, air bases. And um, they met and uh, formed a little family. So we've got broken people. Um, they're called the greatest generation. My parents are, have been referred to that. They, went, they were raised by World War I broken people. They went through a depression without complaining. They went to war without complaining. And then they, they all scattered from Europe and went all over the world and then basically brought the rest of the world to what it is today. So Canada was built by post-World War II immigrants and they never complained. Even if their iPad battery went dead, they never complained. <laughs> so they had three good-looking kids. Um, I, I, really, I really like white. Uh, <laughs> that's my sister and she is right there. Wave your hand, Sandy. That's my big sister. She now lives in Aurelia. That's my good-looking brother. He lives in Bradford. There's Keith right there. And here's Robert Redford right there. <laughs> um, anyway, there we are again, all handsome and everything. Um, you know, we, 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 we kind of cool people, eh? There's me mum. My, both parents are dead, so I mean, you know, we're orphans and all this stuff, but at our age you should be. But, but there we are. Um, so there I am with my mum. And um, after the war, everybody scattered out of Europe. And so my parents had to make a decision where to go. It was either South Africa, Australia, the U.S., or Canada. My dad had some distant cousin living in East End Toronto, Aunt Bertha. And so in 1953, they sold up everything and uh, they went across, like he came first on some little boat in November 53 on the North Atlantic storms. They bought a, uh, they rented a place and we came over in March 54 and, um, and we went to Toronto because of Aunt Bertha. I mean, we could have gone anywhere, but he had a contact and he lived with Aunt Bertha and she helped set him up. So that's why we live in Toronto. Anyway, my brother and I never had a clear view of what life was all about. <laughs> um, we lived in, in, in heavy wealth. That's a fake fireplace that my mom liked and that little Nina Pinta thing. Do you remember that from 100 years ago? Um, and also, Sandy reminded, like, we did have color in those days. Like, we didn't walk around in black and white clothing. Like, it just, that's what cameras did back then. Um, my, we lived in the East End and then um, eventually to uh, in the Scarberia district when Scarborough was all mud and just growing. And we all, my sister first went to Thompson Collegiate, then we all went to Cedarbrae. And uh, we got heavily involved in the activities. I mean, that's when kids were everywhere. All you young people now, you say like, man, look at all the old people. Well, we were young once. And, um, <laughs> and so the schools were huge. Cedarbrae School had 2,500 people. Um, there I am, good-looking me, and there's my good-looking cool brother, and there's a bunch of other good-looking cool people. Um, anyway, and I also got involved with swimming. I liked swimming. Look at, look at the pecs on that guy, eh? Uh, <laughs> so, so we had a pretty active uh, high school life. Now, a school of 2,500, there was, there was a thing called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, being a Christian back then, like, like it, they were always considered a little weird, but not really weird. But you knew who the Christian people were. And, um, and notice, it's, this is back in the 60s. Like today, mostly girls. Like, like girls 
dig it, and guys don't for whatever reason. And look at this. That's Craig Pitts right there. Wave your hand. <laughs> now, look at this. After Cedar Brave, Bible College and Youth Evangelism were Craig's goal. Now, he doesn't remember me much from high school. He doesn't at all. But his whole family, they were like all these big athletic people. Craig was, uh, we all knew Craig and the Pitts family were religious. We all knew that. And Craig was a fun, crazy guy. But I got stuck with Craig on a, uh, a swimming class where I was wanted to become the instructor, get my instructor's rating on the bronze medallion. And to get an instructor's rating, you had to get um, three people passed to get their bronze medallion. Um, now, Craig couldn't do what they call a surface dive or a duck dive. He couldn't do it to save his life. He'd swim along like a pro, go to bend, and legs and splash and foam, everything, everywhere. And he'd finally pull himself underwater. Um, pathetic. He would, no way he'd pass that. So maybe I should have been suspicious about God's hand because the, the examiner's sitting there saying, and he says, Pits! And so Craig starts going in the deep water. So I thought, well, man, here it goes. And just as he's about to do his duck dive, this person comes up to the examiner and says uh, something. And he turns and says, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Craig's out there. Legs are flailing and all that. And then the examiner looks back just as Craig's feet are disappearing <laughs> below the surface. Check. Pass. <laughs> so you got your bronze. I got my instructors. And... I should have realized God was working in your life there, I'll tell you. Um, anyway, we weren't a, a religious family, but back then in the 50s and 60s, like it wasn't wrong to talk about religion. Like it was like the Bible, we all knew the Bible stories. The preachers came into the public schools uh, once a week and they would read Bible stories and all this sort of stuff. And it was no, they weren't arrested or anything. Um, Christmas, we, we, we did the, the, the Christmas carols and we did the parent concert with the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary and all that stuff. Easter, we did, you know, a few chocolate gigs, but we did the cross and we knew there was something about Jesus in the cross. Um, and I, you know, it was all part of your life. Like, Bible was part of your life. Worrying about the, the, the enormity of space was part of your life. Molecular stuff, Watson and Crick just came out with their book. Um, the double helix, and so the whole molecular basis of life was coming out. So all these things are swirling around. If I had to make a stand, is there a God or not, back then, I would have said, yeah, probably. You know, like, no big deal. Maybe, maybe not. And that, that was about it. I mean, it was just part of your life. Um, anyway, I did know. I was, I'm a science guy, okay? Um, so I knew that, you know, basic laws of the universe are that gravity is all matter attracting all other matter. Why? We don't know. It just does. And opposite charges attract and like charges repel. I mean, that's, that's a law of the universe. You can't fight it. I remember thinking, like, if you jam all these protons, which are positive, into a nucleus, like, why don't they blow apart? I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. And all these little negative electrons zooming around. So I remember even as a kid in high school looking at, at stuff like this and saying, wow, this is weird. And then the molecular stuff with Watson and Crick coming out with the DNA and all the molecular stuff, and this little gob of molecules is, is an insulin protein, and it's an enzyme. And so somehow the DNA makes gobs of these little blobs of atoms to make reactions go, and they're in the right order placed on cells in the right spots. And I thought, like, there's no way. Now here's Ken Cox's favorite Krebs cycle. You always, you love the Krebs cycle. 
So obviously every step here and here and here and here and here and all needs an enzyme in the right amount in the physically right location, like an assembly line, all governed by DNA. And I remember thinking this stuff in university, thinking, you know, it's kind of a long stretch to think all this junk evolved. So I just, I never lost sleep over it, but I realized that the very small and the very big were mysterious. I realized that the long past, you know, dinosaurs and Genesis, like whatever, and the future, biblical and, and human, was, was sort of out of my little flashlight beam. So I looked at my existence as like when they used to have ushers at movie theaters, they put the flashlight beam down, and I kind of had a bit of a clue about here and now, but the other extremes was a bit of a whatever. Anyway, cool, huh? <laughs> Isn't that a total heartthrob? Uh, <laughs> So anyway, I, I finally graduated university and, and I became a, should I grow up back? <laughs> so I became a high school science teacher and got involved with uh, swimming and uh, being very active in my high school. Married a high school sweetheart and had two good looking kids, Rob and Jenny. Robert is right there and uh, we'll talk about the other people in your life in a second and Jenny Hart is right there. And uh, so life, life was okay, you know. Um, we didn't have, I'll tell you later, but my folks all split up and all that and everything else. So life was a real hard struggle. So I was a, a school teacher. I taught day school, night school, summer school. I always had three jobs. Um, I worked ambulance. Where's Rob Taylor? Is he here? Not here? Two, oh, well, he's in the nursery. Rob Taylor and I met like in 1970 as students. We were both ambulance attendants. And then here's Rob now back in Halliburton. That was weird. That was actually life for me, to, to work on an ambulance in Metro Toronto. You see some things that are just not talked about in polite conversation. Uh, so I'm working these three jobs. I, um, I still coach swimming. I even made a bet with a guy and sold Mary Kay for a while. <laughs> so I would take out those little pink bags and sing the songs and, you know. <laughs> I didn't have any clue what mascara was or eyeliner and all this stuff. I read a little pamphlet. And all these women are saying, Barry, what do you think? You know? I'm so, I say, well, you're a little darker here and all this. Um, I worked construction. I worked in a glass factory, pilking the glass. I got the scars to show that. Uh, in the wintertime, I delivered fur coats out of storage. And I also worked part-time at Simpsons. So I uh, remember that place used to be around. The old-timers remember Simpsons. So anyway, I did, I did, all I knew about life was work, work, and more work to make ends meet because we didn't have any family support. One little incident that Dean Levitt asked me to mention. Where's Ann? Okay, so Dean said mention this. People, well, everybody was struggling back then. I mean, like, like it just, just the way it was. But um, I had a knock on the door one night, and, and I go to answer it. There's an envelope, and somebody had slid $25 in an envelope under my door and said, we heard you're having a, you know, life's pretty tough. Uh, God bless, Merry Christmas, signed by some church. And they just said, you know, whatever church it was, I don't remember. But I wrote that church a letter, and I said, thank you for your consideration. Um, I said, I hope sometime in my life I'll be able to return the favor, but I'm going to, you know, become like Joe the science teacher and all this sort of stuff. And I remember that, and I told Dean that last week, and he said, put that in. So these little kindnesses that you express to somebody under the radar, like they are not forgotten. So just put that in the back of your head. Anyway, chapter two, uh, the wheels fall off. Divorce. I'm an expert on divorce. You ask me anything about divorce. My parents got divorced. 
And I remember as a kid, Sandy, you can psychoanalyze these images here. I remember as a young kid in high school, my parents were splitting up. It was like an earthquake. Like your foundation of what you're standing on is just coming around, like it's just giving away all around you. You think, man, like what's, what's going on here? Um, when friends and family got divorced, it was like the little bit of ice that I was on was being chiseled. So my circle of security was, was coming in and in. And when finally Lynn said, adios, I'm out of here, it was like the little sandcastles that you had built together. She stood up and, and stamped them down. So in here, you start saying like, man, everything I've stood for and I want, like it's all wrong. Like it ain't, it ain't working. So I wasn't a happy camper at the time. Um, so I became a single parent. I was actually a trendsetter. I was the first person on my block to be a single parent papa. So, you know, we were pretty well known for that. Um, so I continued to teach. And some of you have heard this story. I had an 18.5% mortgage. Uh, the spring that former wife and sweetheart said adios, mortgage rates in the early 80s went from, like, you remember that. We went from 9 to 18.5. A year later, they were 22. So I'm walking around saying, Mine's only 18 and a half, you know? So, like, it was crippling. It was crippling. But there was still groceries to do and cooking to do and dishes in the laundry. Shrunk a lot of clothes. If the clothes didn't survive washer-dryer, too bad, pitch them out. Um, Robert, that's, sorry, that's the best picture I could get of a kid. Robert played hockey. Jenny did brownies. Life was very busy. And, and it was tough on all of us. It was tough on their mom who left. It was tough on Robert and Jenny, and it was, it's a, it was a tough gig. I tell you, it was tough. So during that time, I'd heard of this book. Now, Paul says to me, I've got to give a quote or cautionary, whatever. We'll get to that in a second. I was not looking for a religious answer, even though my brother and sister were praying for me and all this sort of stuff. I was looking for a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get on with your life. So I heard about this book, like Dale Carnegie and all these weird books you hear about. So I went to the school library, and I found this book. And, uh, and I thought it was psychological. Well, immediately, the book says, in the first two pages, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Norma Vincent wrote in the book, he said, say, whenever you're feeling down, which I did a lot then, he said, say it three times. So if I'm blacking out in school, thinking, like, what's going on in my life? I would pull a piece of paper out. Oh, yeah, well, there it is. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that would get me through the next little bit of time. I didn't really understand it, but I said it. And I found out later that, that it's actually part of a bigger verse. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can, all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's not a verse for losers who are trying to get their lives together. It's a verse for everybody, no matter what. Anyway, if you're in a spiritual search, you never go to a Pentecostal church. <laughs> Stoville Pentecostal was at the east end of town. And my mom lived in Oshawa, so we would drive Stoville by post Stoville Pentecostal on the way to go visit my mom, and you wouldn't look at it. Like, you'd kind of drive by like this, uh, because you know it's like holy rollers and all this sort of crazy stuff. So you you just, if you were checking out church, you would never go to a Pentecostal church as a walk-in. Like, you'd go to a United Church or a Catholic Church or 
Anglican, or you'd never go to Pentecostal. But unfortunately, God had posted Craig Pitts 20 years later at Stovall Pentecostal. And, and, and I saw in the paper, Craig Pitts, blah, 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 new pastor at Stovall Pentecostal Church. Um, I knew other ministers in town, but for some bizarre reason, I was not led to go to them. I went and called this guy, and I said, you won't remember me, blah, blah, but you know, here's what I'm going through. Anyway, Craig explained to a lot of people, he said, you, we know about people. Like, we all know who these people are, but you don't really know them. So we know about Albert Einstein and Churchill and the Queen. We'll never meet these people. Um, one of these guys is an Olympic athlete. I think it's the one on the right. Yes, it is. Um, I met Matt Duchesne at our golf tournament that Brenda organized. It went, it went great. So I shook Matt's hand and I said, but I don't really know Matt, but I did meet him. Hockey player, you got it. So um, now, as a as a person growing up in the 50s and 60s, we knew the Jesus stories. We knew about the baby Jesus, and we knew about the cross, and we knew he was some great teacher, and we knew that you know Jesus did the fishing thing and all that stuff. We knew it here, but we never really encountered it. And so Craig said, "Do you want to meet?" I mean, all he talked was Jesus this and Jesus that and all this sort of stuff. Like, oh man, slow down. Um, but he said, if you want to meet Jesus, this is a spiritual thing, so you have to spiritually introduce yourself to Christ. So I did that. And my prayer, because believe me, Linda Beachley said to me, if God can get you, he can get anybody. So like I was about as far from church and Bible and all this as anybody. Believe me, I'm like Joe Science. But I got on my knees under, you remember that? And Craig's right next to me. And I said, Jesus, I don't really believe you exist. But if you do exist, then you can hear my prayer. And I ask you to come into my messy life. I mean, what have I got to lose? 18% mortgage, single parent, you know, come on, you know. So I said, please come into my life, forgive me, and just, just help me in this mess. And uh, that, I was born March 12th, 1949. Not 1849, 1949. <laughs> I gave my heart to Christ November 18th, 1981. Now, having kind of a semi-numerical sort of funny brain, I went on Google and I figured out the number of days from when I was born to November 18th, 1981. And then I also used Google. I flipped that ahead to see when it would double. And guess what it is? Today. <laughs> so... So if I make it to uh, 11 o'clock, it was about in the morning sometime, if I make it to 11 o'clock, I'll have been a Christian for half my life. If I croak right here and now, too bad I didn't make the 50% mark. Um, anyway, that's why I asked Pastor if I could have a few minutes, so that was cool. Something weird happened. I got inner peace. During all this turmoil, something happened here. Like, and I remember you asked me, you said, what do you feel? Inner peace. There wasn't money in my pocket. There wasn't a reduced um, mortgage rate. You know, the kids weren't doing the laundry or cleaning at that time. But something <laughs> happened in here. Um, I started reading like a crazy man. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote more than just a carpenter. And he was a student, a cynical student. And he said, why do people freak out when you talk Jesus? He said, you can talk sex and drugs and rock and roll and all this stuff. But when you say Jesus, people either go, ugh, or they go, wow. And he thought, that is really weird, because you could talk Buddha, Muhammad, you know, Allah, and no one gets freaked out. But you say Jesus, you, you get either really, whoa, or yeah. And so 
he, he investigated that as a student and became a Christian doing it. Mere Christianity, if you've never read that, as a, that's a heavy-duty do, do, book, but that is, that's a life-changer. Uh, Watergate was going on at this time, so Chuck Colson wrote his you know, like major guy with the Nixon presidency. He wrote Born Again and talked about his heart and his heart. Uh, Chuck Colson, come on, like he's on TV all the time. My mom bought me a copy of Holly's, uh, Haley's Bible Handbook, which was all about geography, history, and prophecy in the Bible. Uh, it's a handbook. I read it. I mean, I read it like a book. It was amazing. Um, the Bible, all of a sudden, you read these sort of dead verses in the Bible, and they penetrate your heart. Like, what is going on here? I, I put this down. Hymns and choruses made me weep. They really didn't. I would get dust in my eyes a lot, and I would have to, you know, just clean out the dirt. Um, love of new Christian friends. The pits were phenomenal. I mean, there were new pastor preachers in this church from a big church out in Edmonton. Dorothy Pitts made cookies, chocolate chip cookies for Robert, for Robert and Jenny for years. And one time Dorothy didn't make them. I go home after some church thing and Robert and Jenny said, where are the cookies? <laughs> <laughs> Timely phone calls. My first year as a single parent, Robert and Jenny gone away with their mother for the weekend. My first birthday was that weekend and I was too proud to say, hey, it's my birthday, you know. And, and I was feeling kind of down the dumps. And this phone goes and somebody says, you know, you're really heavy on my heart today. Like, how are you doing? And I said, well, yeah, it kind of sucks right now, and blah, blah. And he said, but it's my birthday. And they said, well, happy birthday. And talked to me for about an hour and encouraged me right when it was needed. Somebody phoned me the next morning and said, man, you were really heavy on my heart yesterday. Um, but I kept phoning your place. The line was busy. So I guess, some, <laughs> I guess someone was talking to you. Lesson, if someone is on your heart, call them. Like, call them and do it. And you'll find that God's used you in a big way that you don't even realize testimonies. Other people had the same experiences, and I'm not, this is public information. John Gunning, former executive with IBM, when he moved to Halliburton, all of us were kind of pushing John, you know, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. And Heather and I were at his house with Wendy Christmas Eve years ago and saying, why don't you do it? Why don't you sign on? And he said, well, just uh, not there yet, you know. Christmas morning, phone goes, 7 a.m. Who phones Christmas morning, 7 a.m.? John Gunning is on the phone. He said, I did it. He said, 5 o'clock in the morning, I did it. He said, I wasn't going to phone you at 5, I'll phone you at 7. And I said, I said, how do you feel? He said, I've been crying for two hours. I feel peaceful and clean. Like I thought, wow. So I'm not the only nut bar. This, this stuff works. And when I see like the kids, the two young kids that gave their testimonies here a couple of weeks ago and then got baptized, like I just think like there's something going on with this Jesus stuff. And empathy. Now, I, I very judgmental guy. I'm a self-made white guy, and, and you know, like if you don't do what I do, then then you're a bit of a failure. I started having empathy for people. There was a little kid that started hanging around with Jenny Hart named Barbara Smith, and uh, remember her? And and Jenny said Barb Smith started hanging around our house a lot. I didn't really like Barb Smith, and. Um, <laughs> So I said to Jenny, why are you hanging around with Barb Smith so much? Like, you know, come on. Like, you know, I said, she lives like, you know, above the barber shop on that little back stairway. And I said, Jenny said, but she's a nice person. And I said, I said, but she doesn't even have a dad. She's only got a single mom. And Jenny said to me, what has that got to do with it? A year later, I was the single parent that maybe some people were saying, you know, like, what do you want to hang around with those kids for? Because they don't have a mom. I mean, like, so watch what you say. Anyway, I could have written this poem, 
Heavenly Father, help us to remember that the jerk who cut us off in traffic last night is a single mother who works nine hours, rushing home to cook dinner, help with homework, do laundry, spend a few precious moments with her kids. Help us remember the pierced, tattooed, disinterested young man who can't make change correctly as a worried 19-year-old student balancing his apprehension over final exams with fear of not getting his student loan for next semester. Remind us, Lord, that the scary-looking bum begging for money in the same spot every day, who really should get a job, is a slave to addictions that we can only imagine our worst nightmares. Help us to remember the old couple walking annoyingly slow through the store aisles and blocking our shopping progress, our savoring this moment, knowing that based on the biopsy report she got back last week, this will be the last year that they'll go shopping together. Heavenly Father, remind us each day that all the gifts you give us, the greatest is love. It is not enough to share that love with those we hold dear. Open our hearts, not to those who are close to us, but to all humanity. Let us be slow to judge, quick to forgive, show patience, empathy, and love. So my life has been a journey of empathy, and I, I'm getting slightly better, still not, you know, there yet. Fleeces and fleeces, fleeces and God fuzzies. Um, when you're in a, a bit of a, a needy time, God will sort of reveal himself more directly to you. And I found out what a fleece was. It's kind of you hang out a little test for God and see if he answers. And mine was Cardinals. You, you bought me that plaque. And um, so anyway, I started saying, hey, God, if you're really there, I want to see some Cardinals in my life. And uh, besides the birds, kids at school would come up to me and say, hey, Mr. Hart, Merry Christmas. They'd give me a bookmark that had a Cardinal on it. I'd be driving to work and there'd be cardinal insulation, cardinal bus tours, cardinals, cardinals. The same year I prayed that, the cardinals won the World Series. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, Lord, I guess that's enough of the cardinals. So uh, anyway, so I finally get this Jesus thing, okay? God has got us on this beautiful train car moving through this wonderful scenery. And he's saying, stay on board. You've got great things to see. And we say, well, what's in the trees? He said, well, you don't want to go there. It's all oogie and muggy and all muddy and all that. Yeah, but what's in the trees? He said, but you don't want to go there. You say, look, I want to check out off the tracks. What's in the trees? So he said, well, okay, away you go. And so you get off the train and you find it's a bit of a disaster. And you can't, it's not as pretty as the train. It's tougher than the train. But this is all you know. And then you come across a little boardwalk with Craig Pitt standing at the end of it. And he's saying, do you want to get back on the train? So take the Jesus boardwalk back on the train and life will get back to the way it should be if you choose to take the path. It's all your choice. So I, I kind of like that. Um, if you don't understand the Jesus thing, think of a loving parent. Your parents' kids, your parents would die for you. Like you're just everything to them. So loving parents who would die for their kids and want the best for their kids but have to let go of their kids every so often... That's what a loving father God image is, is that God loves you like your parents. So if you've got a good parent image, and if you don't, then work on it. Just sort of think of what a good parent image would be, what you would want to be as a good parent. So I got that. Uh, met and married Heather Alloway. There's Heather all beautiful, and there's Heather right there. Um, and Heather... <laughs> Heather was a, a French immersion little public school munchkin teacher. And uh, so that's what she did. And we, Heather said, you know, you should go see this Norm Vincent Peale guy before he dies. Because I said, I'd like, to go, I'd like to go visit and say hello. Thank you for the book. So we drove down to New York, made an appointment months ahead, and went down to see him. And we introduced ourselves and gave it our story to that point. And Heather said, well, I'm the fake mom. I'm, you know, like the stepmom. And he said, lady, you ain't no fake. 
He said, Abraham Lincoln said, all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother, Sarah Lincoln, and she was his stepmother. And I thought that was just a wonderful thing for um, for Peel to say. And Norman Vincent Peel, whether you think he's great or whatever, get over it. Uh, it was a it was a great book. And I know there's all sorts of opinions out there. Robert and Jenny grew up. Look at those two good-looking kids now. Um, Heather and I ski. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And uh, I got my pilot's license. And a friend of Heather said the the aviation love or aviation of your parents. Maybe, you know, this fascination with airplanes. But anyway, we bomb around a little single Cessna, which is a lot of fun. Um, Robert, Robert married Susan. Susan's there. They have one child, Beth. Beth. And, uh, and then Jenny freaked us all out and went to Columbia. Not Washington, South America. And uh, this is when, like 20 years ago, when they were shooting each other crazy in Columbia. But so Heather, or Jenny went down to Columbia, met this family, the, the, the Marlis family, said, oh, these people are terrific. Anyway, um, she met Mum first and married Johan. There's Johan right there. Hola, amigo. And uh, so she's got two kids, Mr. Noah right there, handsome Noah. And Maya's a little older than that now. Um, anyway, so she's met them, and that's Mrs. Marlis and Mr. there, and then his, his sister, Randy. So, they, you know, Jenny's, they, they live in Toronto now, and they've got all this Spanish heritage, which is wonderful. And we even reconciled with the former in-laws. Uh, former wife and sweetheart, Lynn, died, unfortunately. And um, Heather, typical Heather, gets on the phone to the former in-laws and said, look, I know you had a cottage in Norland for years and years, and this is like weeks after the funeral. We got a nice place up here in Halliburton. Do you want to come up for a few days? And you know what they said? Yeah. And so we've got former in-laws on the front porch giving them tea and cookies. And, and it was like worlds in collision for me. But I thought, now, isn't that great? God is good. So what you do, you know, you go into Mass, you have 18% mortgage, you become a single parent, you marry this crazy lady, you know, you get life going, and that's the end of it. Like, isn't Christianity wonderful? And then something else happened. Christian is a verb, okay? Um, one of my favorite parables is the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, the expert in the law stood up and test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors yourself. Right on, says Jesus. But the young guy wanted to justify himself, so he said, Who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, a religious guy, a priest came along, happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, another religious guy, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who weren't, like it was offensive to say the word Samaritan. I mean, I've used some examples like somebody from West Guilford or Torrey Hill. And I, you know, I've gotten in trouble, so I won't say that. Uh, so a Samaritan came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil in, on him and took care of him. Gave him some wine, put him on his um, donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. He took out some money, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him. He committed. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. Which of the three do you think was the neighbor? 
who fell in the hands of the robbers. The expert law, once again, couldn't say the word Samaritan. It said, no, no. He said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So the Samaritan interrupted his schedule, did something, touched the man, gave him some money and some oil and some food, cared for him, committed to pay for him after the guy left that in, and the guy never knew who it was. Like there's no record of the guy waking up and said, who did that? So I love that. I mean, it's a parable, so I'm sure stories like that happen all the time. And the offensive thing is the two religious guys walked by. So, so just next time you go by somebody, you know, at the side of the road struggling to put on a flat tire and you're rushing to church, um, you know, maybe stop and help the guy change their tire. Um, so many people have had like bumps in the, in the middle of their religious journey. And I'm not comparing myself to these giants, but it's interesting. Paul, we all know the story of Paul. Paul was a strong Jewish believer, hated Christians, thought they were all nuts, wanted to kill them all. And the famous story is Paul was going to Damascus to kill Christians, and Jesus said, uh-uh, I'm using you on my side. Um, St. Saint, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, another guy that said, preach the gospel every day if necessary, use words. Apparently he didn't necessarily say that, but we say he did, so I'm sticking with that. Um, not comparing myself to Martin Luther, but Martin Luther had troubles with certain things within the Catholic tradition and, and sort of stood up against it. And there, this is before email and phone, so his dialogue with the church took years. It wasn't like he phoned the Pope and said, you know, Pope, this is Martin Luther here. Um, it would took like a year to get to, to uh, Rome and then figure it out, and a year to get back. And this was all during German patriotism, and that led to the Protestant movement, as you know. This guy, Richard Stearns, life similar to my own, but once again, I'm not saying I'm anywhere near this guy. Richard Stearns had a rough childhood, single parent, money, abandoned parents, drove himself through school, worked hard, 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 eventually climbed the corporate ladder, and he became the head of something called Lennox. Now, Heather's heard of Lennox. I ain't never heard of Lennox. It's not a vacuum cleaner store. It's shishi dishes for the very wealthy, dishes and plates and, and knives and forks and all this stuff. So he did that. And life was great. Pretty wife, pretty little church, pretty Christian kids, nice car, pretty Christian job, go to mission conference, put in 20 bucks. Life was great as a Christian. Then World Vision came after him and said, we think you're our next CEO. And he said, like me? He said, I, I, I'm an executive of a shishi dish place. He said, you don't want me. And this, they, they went after him and they finally got him. And it's written up in a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. I ate it. I ate it, I read it twice, I ate that book, it was amazing. First half, not hate it, ate it. Pay attention in the back row, okay? Um, so anyway, I read this book, and the first half is his testimony, and immediately after he finally signed on with World Vision Family Decision, they took him to Africa, to an orphanage in Africa, and they broke his heart. And all of a sudden he's saying, what am I doing with my life? Like, like what are we doing with our lives? Um, then the same thing happened to Heather and me. We're minding our own lives as good Christian folks. And all of a sudden, we go to a conference and we read this and we hear this. And it just was like an arrow piercing my heart. I thought, what am I doing with my life? With my Christian life, what am I doing? So we became water missionaries. And you know the stories here. It can get a little dirty. Um, so the first, like this, this is the founding church of Water Ambassadors Canada. And the first all-Canadian team was myself, John Beachley. John, did you show up today? Apparently John showed up last week and said, is Barry on today? And they said, no, and he took off. So anyway, he's my buddy. 
Anthony and Julianne Van Lyshout, there's Heather, there's Jaime, our good buddy, Pat Casey, Lou and Rita, the Living Water guys, and Dwayne and Lori Lloyd. We were the first all-Canadian water and bat, well, back then, living water team to go and do a well. There's Jenny Hart putting in a drill stem, and Jenny's been on a team. And there's Rick and Johan. We went to Nicaragua to do well repairs. Look at the pipes on Rick, eh? Uh, there's Johan supervising. Notice Johan's out on a pipe. He just, you know. <laughs> so we went down there. And, uh, and then Wade and I went to Uganda, um, and it's just amazing the people you meet, and, and we put in a water chlorination system in Uganda. We went to Haiti as a, an organization and put in chlorinators after, after the earthquake. And uh, after Hurricane Haiyan last November, this church really stepped up. Just before Christmas, you remember the spiel, we said four million people displaced. This church sponsored full out at least three of these systems, and between water step and Water Ambassadors Canada, we sent 62 of those systems at about four grand a piece to, um, to uh, Philippines to give water. And some of the, and you know this story, so I told the church this already. Some of the people were emailing back and forth. They said, do you want to go to water school? And they said, well, no, we can't afford it. Um, I can't afford a water chlorination system. And the email went back, it's free. And the guy said, I'm there. So people stood up to the plate there. It was, it was a real buzz. When you serve on a mission team, the people don't even sit next to you. They, 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 like you're special. You think like, man, what's going on here? Like they let you, they, they serve you, they give you food, they buy you big torpedoes of Coke, which is a day's wages. And they just sort of want to just let you be special. And you're thinking like, wow, this is weird. The kids think that you're terrific. Like they're just like, like you're, you're, you're like a Justin Bieber celebrity, you know, or another Matt Duchesne. They just think, wow, this, why, why are these people here helping us? Why are these North Americans who have everything helping us? It's, it's pretty humbling. So we do this. And we've challenged many people before. Why don't you put your Christianity, step it up a notch, rather than just going on Sunday, dropping 10 bucks in the plate, and, you know, you do your prayers and Bible studies. you got to do something. And everybody's got all these excuses. Oh, it's dangerous. It's too expensive. I don't have the time. I want to buy a new boat. I like fishing. I got to do chores around the house. I'll get sick. I'll get, it's dangerous. I've got to go on a family vacation. And, you know, there's always golf. We got 50 excuses, I, as I did, not to step up and do something mega for God. And I use the example of the Titanic, which I've used many times. There's 200 sovereign nations in the world. Eight of them are in the G8. So if we say in the Titanic that there were 200 people on board and the ship sinks and there's eight lifeboats, there's 192 people in the water drowning and you're rowing around in your little lifeboat. One of them has Canada written on it and you're in this lifeboat. And, and when I ask people for money for water and all this sort of stuff, they say, oh, Hannah, I get asked all the time. Like, can't you people stop? There's a cacophony of 192 people asking for help and you're in one of the lifeboats. Now, would you rather be in one of the lifeboats deciding whether you help or not, or would you rather be one of the 192 people in the water hoping a lifeboat will come over and help you? That isn't easy to figure out. I mean, you can figure that one out. And I just had a whole bunch of things go through my head. When you go near the lifeboats, what are the lifeboat people talking about? Well, these seats are too hard. Why don't we, why don't we make cushions? I don't, I don't like the paint scheme on this. Let's, you know, let's paint this lifeboat. I wish I had brought my, my iPad. I could listen to tunes. Meanwhile, around you, people are drowning. And the world is in, you know, like for the poverty stuff we do, it's pretty heavy. Bible does not have much to say about helping the needy and the poor. Um, you know, 
like not not too much at all. I mean, like it's uh, you know if you Google verses on on helping people, there aren't many. Look at this, Luke. Sell your possessions. Sell your possessions. Like I haven't done that. I mean, you know, sell your stuff. And here's the, here's the, here's the clincher. Matt 25. When the son of like the, the 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 guys always said, hey Jesus, what's heaven like? Like what's going on here? And he said, well, heaven is like. So he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates sheep from goats, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say, Lord, why did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked or clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer him and say, Truly I say unto you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did to me. Now here's the heaven. Then he'll also say on those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, prepared from the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or sick or in prison and all that stuff? He said, truly say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and all that stuff. Now the thing that bothers me about this is the guys called him Lord. So the guys who did nothing didn't say, who are you to tell me what to do with the stuff that I've got? They knew him. They said, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And he said, you did nothing with what I gave you. Now that's a heavy thought for a church to step up and do that. Anyway, first words out of Pope Francis's mouth, if you saw the, the swearing in, was pray for me, which stopped everybody dead in St. Peter's Square. And the second words out of his mouth were help the poor. Help the poor. So maybe the church is getting this, this vision. Uh, Jesus said we're salt and light. you got to get the salt out of the shaker. Too much salt in a shaker. Actually, people put salt on to kill things if it's too concentrated. Jesus wanted it to be salt as flavoring, not as dehydration preserving. So get the salt out of the shaker. Get out there, folks. And to have a lamp work, you got to turn it on. And so that's what Christ said. The example of washing feet. When you wash feet, if Christ himself did the lowliest job of washing tootsies, um, then he, if he can do it, then I can do it. And uh, the strange thing is, when you do something like that, the rewards in here when you help someone are just phenomenal. You think, like, I, I just did this. It's phenomenal. I heard this from a guy um, out in Promise Keepers, capture a vision beyond yourself, which is kind of cool. And I've got lots of people. I can't show all the pictures. There's Look at the pipes on that kid. Um, so the Ray Clan's been on a trip. A lot of you have been on a trip here. And when you do these things, it's, it's just amazing when you actually wash feet and help somebody else out, whatever you're doing. There's Jesse uh, down in Antigua, Guatemala, helping out. If, if Dwayne can get dirt on his face, then, then anybody can do mission trips. 
Over 180 people have caught the vision and joined Water Ambassadors teams. This is the founding church, and we've, and we got a team going with Pam and Gord on Wednesday. Others have joined Ann Fowler and Bill Watts. Bill Watts, give me a break. Rich dentist. And he goes to Honduras for free, and he runs a dental clinic in Minden. Like, give me a break, Bill. You could buy a nice car with that. And these two crazy dudes here. Don't you get tired of the McKays? Like, come on. Like they're, they, they're limping and they got sore backs and surgery on the wrist. They even use their electric wheelchairs to get around airports when they go to Jamaica. Hey, man, lay on the beach. No, they go to the jails in Jamaica and they go to the jails here. So these guys with, you know, their physical ailments are plugging right through for Christ. And obviously a jailbird's got to say, why are you here? Like, what are you doing? And other folks, Jerry, and other folks have gone with them. Ron Reed, Jerry Feltham have done help a village effort. Anyway, what have I learned over whatever? We are mind, body, and soul. Canadians emphasize the development of mind and body, but we ignore the soul, which is the immortal part. Now, in other nations of the world, take your blinkers off, other nations of the world don't think like that. Other nations realize that we're sort of three things, um, but we don't here in Canada, so try and realize that. God loves us so much he died for us, as a loving parent would do. Um, this is a little frustrating. God moves huge, silent, but man, God sometimes is real slow. So I've been a Christian for a long time, and it's taken decades to get to where I am now. Forgiveness is a freely available gift you must ask for. Just like when you've had an argument with your spouse, or your mom, or your dad, or a friend, you know you got to say sorry, but it's a tough thing to do. And when you finally break down and say sorry, then everything is reconciled. So God's saying, are you going to say sorry and let's get back together? God wants to reconcile, but it's your choice. And if you are already uh, reconciled to Christ, you have a job to do. More than just coming to church and Bible study. Step up. Do something. Like, do something. The world is suffering. Um, I have lived 23,878 days, which is 65 years, 4 months and 15 days. I've lived 11,939 without Jesus. And as of today, and I made it to 11 o'clock, as of today, I've lived 11,939 with Jesus. I have given half my life to Christ, and he gave his whole life for me. Uh, cool, eh? Um, anyway, so this is my story. I was an immigrant kid. Life was hard working in that generation, as it was for all of us. Uh, I went through divorce of parents, my own family. I became a single-parent papa. I would end up living in Halliburton. I always wanted to live in Halliburton. Married to a crazy, energetic, loving Heather. I'd been a pilot. I enjoyed an active life, a good church life. And then I would spend my retirement as a founder and volunteer and server of an international humanitarian water agency. Did you ever see that? Neither did I. What a hoot. So what is your story? You're still working on your story. When was your Jesus moment? You, you know, most of you can identify an actual moment when you bent your knee and gave it to Christ. And what are you doing about it today? Have you not had your Jesus moment yet? And you know God is, and you, you know, and you kind of get the squirmies. If you haven't had your Jesus moment yet, then you do what I did. Say, Jesus, I don't believe you're there. But if this, what this crazy guy is saying is true, maybe I should just check it out. And then what are you doing about it? What is, what's going to happen about your Jesus moment? Anyway, let's have a prayer. Well, Lord, this is my story up to today. And I just thank you for, for wow, the, the incredible journey that you've taken me on here, Lord. And there's still more to come. And I pray for everybody in this room and their stories and what you're doing in their lives. God bless them all. 
and the special folks that came up today, I just thank you for them and, and the little feast we'll have after and all this. So anyway, God bless. Praise the Lord. Amen.